Hi, Kelly. Hi, Michelle. How are you? I'm great, thanks. <laughs> Today we're here on Leaning In, Speaking Out. We've been doing a series for the Status of Women Review Committee. And in honor of Women's History Month, been talking about different research that's happening at BU in relation to equity. For those of you listening, we are talking today with Dr. Kelly Saunders. She is an associate professor in political science and gender and women's studies. And so she writes about Métis governance, about the MMF, about policy, Canadian politics, Indigenous politics. Anything else you want to add in there? <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm also involved uh, right now in a current book project on Manitoba politics as well. Hey, hey. Yeah, covering the spectrum a little bit. <laughs> Even broader. Do you want to just start us off? Tell us about your project, the research that you're doing. What is the title? What are the goals of it? As you mentioned, my main area of focus in terms of my research, and has been for quite some time now, is Métis politics and governance. There's a lot that have been written about the Métis from an historical perspective, about Louis Riel, about the culture of the Métis, and legal issues. How do the Métis fit into the Constitution? And government policy, but not very much has been written, in fact, nothing has been written uh, about uh, contemporary politics and governance. How do the Métis organize themselves as political actors in Canada? How do they negotiate with the provinces and with the federal government? What do their governance structures look like? Uh, what are the principles upon which Métis governance uh, are built on? So those are some of the, the questions that uh, I first began investigating about 15 years ago and that just grew into just an incredible labor of love so that really is my main area and then within that which will be the focus I'm sure of our conversation today looking at the incredible role and the very powerful role of women within Métis governance. That's really interesting so when you're thinking about the role of women in Métis governance who are you hoping will benefit from this research or as it moves forward? I'll start there. Mm -hmm, absolutely. A number of people. And, and it really begins with the women themselves. They're in positions of authority. I'm sure we'll get into some of the details later. But women are incredibly well represented. In fact, more than 50% of Métis governing bodies from elected presidents all the way down are women. So women are in fact overrepresented, uh, which is a nice place to be, it's right? Unusual compared yeah, to other for politics. a woman yeah. in politics, absolutely. And so really just honoring these women that have been incredible trailblazers uh, and powerful actors uh, and, and, and amazingly successful politicians in their own right. So really honoring them and giving voice to their own experiences. And, and so that is really first and foremost who I want to focus the or the benefits of the research on but also others as well to inspire other women other gendered minorities that that are part that are citizens of the Métis Nation that are looking to get involved and and can see these powerful role models and and think that yeah this is something that I can do there's a place for me as well but then also non uh, non-indigenous non-Métis children and 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 well it's um, women are so underrepresented when we look at settler governments, right? When we look at provincial governments, when we look at the federal government, women only make up about a third of all elected positions in the House of Commons and in provincial legislatures. Anything that settler governments can learn from the Métis. The Métis are truly trailblazers and have always been in this area of gender representation. And so we can learn from Indigenous people, which is a wonderful place 
when we're talking about conversations of reconciliation and de decolonization, this is certainly something that we can learn from the Métis. That's really powerful. Has it always been that way, the, the representation of women? Yeah, in fact, and that's what got me into this research. As I said, when I started carving out a research agenda for myself and decided that I wanted to look at contemporary Métis governments, I'm not Métis myself, but I grew up, my, my spouse and children are, and I, I've spent the last 25 years, and, and my spouse is an elected representative in the Manitoba Métis Federation. And so I just started hanging out with him and going to different Métis events provincially, nationally, across the Métis Nation homeland, across Western Canada, and just going to these Métis political events, annual assemblies, and different conferences and workshops. I remember just sitting there at one point, I was at a national conference, and all the Métis leaders were there in Canada, from Canada, from across the homeland. And I sat there and I went, looked around the table and I went, I thought to myself, wow, there's a lot of women here and they are, they're not just getting coffee, right? They are right. sitting at the decision-making table. They are national leaders and leaders of their own governments and they've been democratically elected by the people. They're not just appointed individuals and other people are listening to them. They are truly leaders and that is someone who teaches uh, courses on gender and politics. I, I know, as I just said, how underrepresented women are in provincial governments and in, in, in the federal, uh, at the federal level and across the industrialized world, right? And so I thought, what is going on here in the Métis world that where women are so identifiable and so empowered and, and what can we learn from this? And that, so that's really what started me down that path. This is such a fantastic con continuation of the previous two interviews because both of those women were talking about the underrepresentation of women in their mm -hmm. fields and the work that they're doing to try to close that gap. Mm -hmm. And so I love that the third and final episode in this series is talking about the strengths and the ways that we can celebrate the achievements of women. And I wonder if you want to talk at all about the findings that you have mm -hmm. around what can we learn? What are the things that you're bringing forward? Absolutely, yeah. There were a couple of key things that came out from the findings because I embarked on this research. As I do all of my research, is very much community-driven. I begin with the voices of the Métis themselves. And as a settler, really being mindful of my place is really not to speak for but to create opportunities and space for the, the voices of the Métis to speak for themselves. And I just carry that forward into the academic world. So that is, I see my role as a messenger and not as leading the way, but as really being guided by the incredible women and elders that I met with in the course of my research. And what really struck me is a couple of things. Number one is the fact that women have always been pre-contact, a pre-control in Canada. When we talk about First Nations women, when we talk about Métis women, they've always been the centerpieces of their communities, right? We talk about women as being the knowledge keepers, as being the fire keepers of their communities. Women played incredibly powerful roles, not only in terms of making sure that culture and community and oral stories and just the history of their communities, of their nations, were passed down to other generations, to children, to grandchildren. Women were the first and foremost educators 
of younger generations within their communities. But they also worked very much alongside men in, in, in ensuring that the life and well-being of the community could continue. So for example, in the case of Métis women, we focus on the men on their horses, the buffalo hunters during the fur trade. None of that work would have happened or would have been successful if it wasn't for the women working alongside those men. The women were the ones that prepared the hides and, and the meat for trade at the fur trading posts that, that, that provided the pemmican and the food products that allowed men to be out hunting for months at a time uh, during the hunts. Uh, so that uh, they could be sustainable. That often were the ones that took the furs to the trading posts and bartered the, with the Hudson's Bay and Northwest Company um, representatives and in getting good prices uh, for, the, for, the, for their products. And that also as well engaged in their own economic activity through beadwork. And the incredible, we've all seen the amazing beadwork garments, right, that, that mostly women engaged in. Those products were sold around the world, right, to different traders that were coming through the various trading posts. And so those products were sold for profit and that women, again, created those products, bargained and negotiated the sale of those products and were really vital to keeping economically their families going. And so, you know, the interesting thing about that is that work was not gendered, right? It was just, it wasn't women's work or men's work. It was all important work that had to be done. Women tended to do more of the beadwork and more of the preparation of the hides. Men tended to do more of the, of the actual hunting of the buffalo. But it wasn't seen in a hierarchical way where, oh, that's devalued women's work, right? This was all vital work that had to happen in order for the sustainability of the community and, and the Métis Nation as a whole to go forward. And so, so that so women were always valued and the, the the men that I would talk to would often say when we would get together to decide on the on the laws of the hunt and so forth it was typically the men that would do that but they were always informed by the voices of the women by the aunties by the grandmothers in their community the men might have been the spokespeople but it was really being driven by the wisdom and the guidance of the women behind them and so Again, when we talk about Métis politics, women have always been a very important part of all of that. And that was able to continue through to contemporary Métis governance. It's not like it stopped in the 1800s. And I think a key issue for why it was allowed to continue on this predominance of women in the decision-making of their communities was really because the Métis were not included under the Indian Act, the ways in which First Nations were. A lot of that, that that break that was forced upon the First Nations, where what happened pre-contact and, and then what happened post-contact was a real distinct divide. And we saw the ways in which First Nations communities through the creation of the reserve system, the band governance system that was forced upon First Nations, uh, that was not in keeping with traditional First Nation principles. And but they had no choice, obviously, right? That was part of colonialism. And then the forced departure of children in the residential school system. Because the Métis were ignored and forgotten about by Canada, Canada really didn't bother dealing with the Métis at all, they were allowed to continue their own governance structures in a way that was unimpeded to that degree by the forced imposition of the Indian Acts. There was a lot of hardship that came with being the forgotten people, which is how the Métis, have, a label that the Métis themselves have identified with. 
but there was some unintended positive consequences. And that, in, when we look at the role of women, Métis governance has not been as distorted and colonialized the way that it has, unfortunately, been for First Nations women. So yeah, so First Nations women, unfortunately, remain still very underrepresented in their own banned systems of governance. But Métis women were, have really been allowed to, that space has continued for Métis women in a way that we don't see for other women. Yeah, certainly something to celebrate. Fascinating. So patriarchy came in with colonization. Absolutely, yeah. And again, I want to be careful. It's not that Métis women have not been subject to patriarchy. They are. Even within Métis governance systems, you'll still hear a lot of women say, yeah, there's still a lot of sexism and violence that happens within our own community. It's not like everything is, is great. <laughs> yeah, patriarchy yeah. has impacted yeah. all of us. Colonialism has impacted all of us. Mm -hmm. But in terms of our electability and our ability to still have strong voices around those political decision-making tables, we, what hasn't been as, it, it, it's, it hasn't been as bad, shall we say, from, at least from a political point of view as it has, unfortunately, for Métis women and certainly settler women in this country. Another thing that's coming up, and it's just a memory of mine, of I had a Métis person tell me that the Métis are really good at finding another way. Mm. And so being blocked and finding a way around or Absolutely. You know, finding a new path, and you use the word trailblazers, and it makes me wonder if that also came up in your research. Yeah, and in yeah. fact, that is just in the context of our work on Métis governance, myself and my, my a colleague from University of Ottawa, Dr. Jeanique Dubois, that I work closely with, we identified Métis principles of governance and things like democracy, the rule of law, and we, one of the things that we, another principle that we identified is what we called provisionality. And that is really where exactly what you just said, you put it beautifully, that the Métis always find a way, right? If one door is closed, they will find another door that's open. And it's always about pushing the boundaries of, and to achieve self-determination. That is always the goal, but there's multiple ways of getting there. And one step back means you just find another open door. And it all leads in the right direction at the end of the day towards self-determination. And that is something that we see a common thread in Métis governance right from the original days of the buffalo hunt to contemporary times. And women have been at the forefront of much of that. I can't take credit for that because that was something yeah. that I heard, but yeah, yeah. no, it's very yeah. true. Yeah. I'm going to read the theme of the 2023 Women's History Month, and then I'm going to ask how your research connects with that theme. So the theme is through her lens, celebrating the diversity of women, and it emphasizes the importance of recognizing the achievements and contributions of women from diverse backgrounds. It focuses on the unique perspectives, experiences, and challenges faced by Indigenous women from two SLGBTQIA plus communities and newcomer racialized and migrant women. So we talked a little bit already about some of those connections, but are there any other things you found in your research that really connect with that theme? Yeah, there's a number of things that I can pull out and highlight. Again, this is a celebration of women and, and Indigenous women in particular, Métis women in this case. And I think it's important to note that there are so many there's so many challenges still that are facing Indigenous communities, and the Métis are no exception to that. When we look at the ongoing impacts of colonialism, it's not something that just happened mm -hmm. 150 years ago. Colonialism is reinventing itself every day in this community, and 
in this country, and we can see even issues that came up in the provincial election, right, around murdered and missing Indigenous women and some of the pushback to that. So there is still a lot of work to be done, and I think we have to be really mindful of that work. But one of the things that the Métis women that I interviewed said is that we are not victims. Canada tends to look at Indigenous people as through that victim lens. And yes, there are a number of things that we are still fighting to achieve in terms of equity and, and recognition and acknowledgement. But we are not victims. We, are, we have agency. We are empowered. We are moving forward in our own communities and our lives. And we want to be seen as such. We are survivors, but we are not victims. And that was a really powerful way, I think, to flip that victim lens that we tend to still portray a lot of Indigenous people, because that, that, that denies their agency for these folks. And again, not saying that there isn't a lot of work that still has to be done, and we have to be mindful of that, and the statistics really bear that out. But, but that really came through, is let's celebrate the achievements and, and the empowerment of Indigenous women and young girls. The other thing also as well that touches on the 2SLGBTQIA aspect is that with colonialism and with patriarchy came the gender binary and came issues around enforced um, heteronomy. And indigenous communities pre-contact, pre-control were much more fluid around sexual orientation, sexual empowerment, around gender identity. and two-spirit peoples in Indigenous communities, First Nations as well as Métis, were celebrated, were seen as people that had extra special gifts that were given to them by the Creator, and that were honoured and given honoured positions within their community. And it was only through patriarchy and colonialism that we really saw that stripped away in Canadian society. And by the, through the revitalization of First Nation and Métis communities, we can begin to recenter gender expressions and sexual orientation expressions and move away from all the dangers that gender binary, that, that heteronormativity have really enforced upon us and the ways in which it's minoritized the LGBT communities. That is, I think, something else to celebrate as well, that we can begin to look at gender and sex in, in, very, in, in a much more inclusive, much more broader, much more healthier and true way. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I've heard that you say that phrase pre-contact, pre-control. Is that mm -hmm. your phrase? I just want to check. Out yeah, that. when we, because the, we use that because First Nations, obviously, mm -hmm. we can talk about pre and post-contact, right? Mm -hmm. the, the contact between First Nations, First Peoples that were here and the European settlers that came. For the Métis, because they are a culture that were born post-contact, mm -hmm. so it, it really came about the ethnogenesis was really through the First Nations peoples that were here and then the European settlers that came and the interactions between First Nations and Europeans. They are a post-control people. When Canada imposed control over over Turtle Island, that's where we talk about the how the Métis fit into that. That's helpful. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So, any future plans for your project for the things? What's coming next? Yeah, this is so. My research on Métis women has as, and I've gotten some pushback from Métis women on this, <laughs> and rightfully. I wrote a book with my colleague Dr. Dubois and. Uh, on Métis governance and politics and so one of the chapters in that book was on Métis women and 
and I was called to task for that. It's, <laughs> we don't want to be buried in a book on larger Métis politics and governance. We deserve our own platform. Yeah. And absolutely right. And I was ashamed when I realized that, oh gosh, this is a story that needs to be told unto its own. So I'm continuing to do that research, whether that turns out into a standalone book on, on Métis women in, in, as political actors, which would be a wonderful project. Well, I'm not sure. There are other Métis women as well that are uh, people like Dr. Jennifer Adizi that are, that's doing wonderful work around Métis women. And so I really want to be mindful of it's wonderful to have Métis women telling their own stories and especially about their own political leaders who happen to be women. So making sure that there's space for some of these other Métis voices, which is wonderful work that's coming to the fore. Yeah, so not sure where this work will take me, but I'm continuing to engage in it because, as I said, these these women are just so incredibly inspiring to me and, and to my own daughter and my Métis son as well. Yeah, lots of good work happening out there. Oh, thanks for sharing. I think that's a great way to wrap up. I do want to say that I really appreciate how you're positioning yourself in relation to your research mm -hmm. and thinking of yourself as a person who is carrying the stories forward, mm -hmm. not taking over to tell the stories. And I think that's a really beautiful way of presenting yourself as a yeah. doing Indigenous. Yeah, and we're very conscientious of that. and. And that's where we work with elders. We incorporate Machif, which is the language of the Métis people. And it was really one of the one of the first elders that we sat down with. Really, he in, he encouraged us to to think from a Métis perspective, to leave our settler and our political science white academic <laughs> kind of limitations yeah. at the door, and to really embrace Métis ideas, knowledge, ways of being and to just create space for that. And that, that, is a, that, is, that was just such an honor to, to have that knowledge shared with us. And so we're mindful of that every single step that we take. It's a privilege to be able to work with the Métis and we're very humbled by that. And that's something that we, we carry forward in everything that we do, everything that I do. It's harder than it sounds. To it is. Take the colonization out of your head, right? It is. Absolutely. And then when I go to academic conferences, the pushback that sometimes I've received on my work as well, right? And from white yeah. colleagues who have been trained in that Eurocentric political science discipline, which has a lot of work to do in terms of embracing different knowledge systems, different peoples, different communities, and just different perspectives of what constitutes scholarly research and being much more open to different ways of knowing and being. I've had to fight a lot of those battles, but they are worthwhile battles. And you're embodying your research then, right? As a Absolutely. woman in a male-dominated yep. field. Yes, very yeah. much. Can yeah. take the, the lessons that you're learning and applying yes. in your own life. Yeah. yeah, for sure. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming and for sharing. It's been a wonderful conversation, and uh, I wish you all the best in your research. Let me know when your book comes out. We'll do another episode. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, <laughs> yeah. thank you. It was a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for being here.